Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. So Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here we are, the last of the seven letters. Uh, But just to recap briefly from last week, where we looked at the sixth letter, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. So anyway, we looked at the letter to the church in Philadelphia two weeks ago. This would have been uh, on January 3rd. And Philadelphia was considered to be the faithful church. Uh, And it was faithful for two primary reasons, according to what we saw in verses 7 to 13. The first reason was that they kept the word. They kept the word of the Holy One and the True One. And we saw that a faithful church, a true church, is one that keeps or observes or listens to or obeys the words of her great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And the telltale sign of a faithful disciple or a faithful church is obeying the words of her master. Secondly, they were a faithful church because they did not deny the name of Christ. They did not deny his name. In a period where persecution meant denying the name of Jesus, where you would be called before the tribunal and you would be, you would be uh, commanded to recant the name of Christ or else face judgment. Uh, these, these people here in Philadelphia, they did not deny his name. And of course, those who refuse to deny Christ's name will be publicly acknowledged by Christ before the Father. That's what he tells us in the Gospels. Anyone who acknowledges me before men, him I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Now, they were also a church of little power that we saw last time. And we spoke of how a mark of faithfulness in the church is the recognition that in and of ourselves, we have no real strength. We have no power. And that the power comes from the Holy Spirit working in and through us and in and through the word. So as such, because of their faithful witness to Christ and their perseverance in persecution from the false Jews, the synagogue of Satan that was there in Philadelphia, Jesus promises to set before them an open door. And then we looked at what that open door meant and 
the majority report among commentators is that the open door is the open door of ministry. But we also looked at another option, that the, uh, that the open door is the open door to the kingdom of heaven. As we see, and we will see next time when we look at chapter 4, the first verse in chapter 4 talks about how John is caught up and he sees an open door into heaven and he is invited in the spirit to go into the heavenly throne room to receive the future visions that he's going to receive throughout the rest of this book. So they were a church, so they they had uh, they would not be barred then entrance into the kingdom of heaven and they would also have an open door to fruitful ministry before them. So we said, you know, we didn't really need necessarily to pick one or the other. We could say, you know, both could be true in this case. And then also Jesus promises to this church that they will be kept from the hour of trial that is coming. And then finally to the one who overcomes, the overcomer, Christ promises to make that person a pillar in the temple of my God. And, and again, that idea of being permanently fixed in the temple of God. The temple of God is where God dwells with his people. So the people in Philadelphia would not be removed from the presence of the Lord as they were being barred from the synagogue in Philadelphia. And then Jesus finally says that he will write his name upon them. So now as we come to the final of the seven letters to the churches in Asia, we see now the church of Laodicea. And we're coming now to the close of what John says in Revelation 1, verse 19, the things that are. So he breaks down kind of what Revelation will look like, where he says, you know, Jesus tells them, write the things that you have seen, write the things that are, and then the things that will take place after this. So the things that are, are the, church, the, the, the letters to the churches in Asia. So this is sort of the current uh, timescape that they're in, the current time frame of the end of the first century. As we go on beyond this, in chapter 4 and beyond, we're going to be seeing the things that take place after this. And here we see Jesus, of course, the great high priest, the one who walks among and tends to the golden lampstands, is about to finish his words to these struggling churches. Now, these churches are, you know, churches undergoing persecution at the end of the first century in Asia. They are undergoing false teaching. They're undergoing, um, you know, oppression from without and oppression from within. So they are, you know, this is the church at the end of the first century. And it has faced persecution. It has faced apostasy. It has faced complacency. It has faced false teaching. And it has faced lovelessness. In other words, everything you see happening to these churches runs the full gamut, the full spectrum of problems that the church of Jesus Christ can face. Peril within, peril without. And through it all, Jesus is there to lead, to guide, to comfort, to instruct, to rebuke, and to reward his church. Our church, our Lord wants his church to know that even though he's not with them physically, he is still there leading them spiritually. As he said at the end of the Great Commission, I am with you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he may not be there with them physically, but he is there with them in spirit as he commands John, his servant, to write to these churches to give them his words of comfort, instruction, rebuke, and so on. 
And then, of course, what is true at the end of the first century is true now, right? As it has been true throughout the entire church age, Jesus Christ is with us always, even now, and until the end of the age. Now, as I've been doing, making my habit through these letters to the seven churches, I want to talk a little bit about the city of Laodicea. So Laodicea is sort of like the last stop on the tour. So if you, th- you know, think of the Magical Mystery Tour and you get down to the end, this is the last stop. You know, we're going to hit, you know, the, the train is hitting the terminal station here. Last stop, Laodicea. And the city of Laodicea, on that semicircular route, if you still have that map I gave you, start in Ephesus, you start going north, and then you come back down south. When you hit Laodicea, Laodicea is situated about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. So it's south of the last city we looked at. Now, by cities in in that time frame, it's a relatively newer city. It was founded at the end of the 3rd century B.C. by the Seleucid monarch Antiochus II. So the Seleucid monarchy, if you think about, um, you had uh, Babylon, then you had Persia, and then the Persians gave way to the Greeks. And then when Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world at that time, he died at a very early age. And then his kingdom was passed on to four uh, successors who sort of split up his kingdom into four areas. The Seleucid dynasty is one of those four. So uh, this would be sort of a kind of a hybrid, you know, Greek type, Hellenistic type kingdom that was, you know, took place somewhere in that Middle East area there. Now, Laodicea was considerable both in size, as far as the size of the city, and its wealth. It was a very wealthy city. So it boasted a robust medical industry, famed for its uh, eye salves. It, it, it did a lot of things with uh, you know, eyesight and things like that. It, was also, it also was home for a thriving textile industry that specialized in rich black lamb's wool that they used to clothe people. And in 60 AD, an earthquake rocked the city, but because of their great wealth, they didn't, they didn't bother to ask for imperial aid. The, the empire wanted to help rebuild the city, and Laodicea said, no, that's okay. We don't need your help. We can take care of this ourselves. Now, as you're already hearing some of these things, and if you heard me read through the letter to the Laodiceans, you're already, you should be trying to already forming a picture as to how the, the, what was going on in the city was also going on in the church in Laodicea because a lot of the things that are going on in this history, Jesus addresses to that church in Laodicea. Now, as with all of the Asian cities we've looked at so far, they worship the Greco-Roman gods. And in this case, the city of Laodicea had a temple that was dedicated to the Greek god Zeus, so the chief of their pantheon. Now, for all that Laodicea had going for it, the one thing that it didn't have going for it was the water supply. The water supply there near the Lycus Valley where um, uh, Laodicea was. Now, it's like part of a little tri-city area. You had Laodicea, and then to the north of it, you had a town called Hierapolis, and and to the south, you had the town called Colossi. And those three were in the Lycus Valley area. And the water in the Lycus Valley area where Laodicea was, was undrinkably bad. Okay, you could not drink it. It was muddy, nasty, icky, 
garbage water. You wouldn't want to drink it. So it had to get its water piped in via aqueducts from Hierapolis and, and Colossae. Now its neighbor to the north, Hierapolis, was home to uh, medicinal hot springs. So hot water was available in Hierapolis, and they would transport that down via aqueduct to Laodicea. And then in Colossae, they had cold mountain water, sort of like you know they used to make cores, you know, mountain fresh water okay, from the Rockies. And that water was also piped in via aqueduct to uh, Laodicea. Now, the problem was when the water reached Laodicea, by the time it got there, it was neither hot nor cold. So the hot water would become lukewarm. The cold water would become lukewarm. And now, again, you can kind of see where this is going with the city of Laodicea and the letter that Jesus writes to the church. Now, interestingly enough, the Christian community at Laodicea dates all the way back to apostolic times. In fact, there are two mentions of the church in Laodicea in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Again, Colossae being a neighbor city. In Colossians 2.1 and in Colossians chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, they make mention of a church in Laodicea. In fact, it's believed that one of Paul's disciples, a guy named Epaphroditus, I believe was the name, or Epaphras, might have been the one who actually started the church in Laodicea. In fact, some even believe that the letter to the Ephesians was really the letter to the Laodiceans that Paul mentions in Colossians chapter 4, 16, because he says, uh, read this letter that I'm writing to you and then send it to the Laodiceans and then read their letter that I wrote to them when they bring it here. Now, the reason they believe Ephesians was to the Laodiceans is because uh, Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, where it says Paul to the church in Ephesus some early manuscripts of Ephesus don't have the name of the town Ephesus. It's blank. So some scholars theorize that Ephesus was sort of like a form letter that Paul wrote to be circular, circulated to many churches, not just to Ephesus. And that the one that we have that says Ephesus on it was their copy of it. That's one theory. So that's why some believe that Ephesians might be the letter to the Laodiceans. All that to say... It is to this church that Jesus commands John to write. And that's where we look at now as we start to get into the text. In verse 14, we see the command to write. And he says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Now, as Jesus does in all of his letters, he introduces himself and he here he uses a threefold way to introduce himself to the church in Laodicea. He says, first, that he is the Amen. Now, the word Amen, of course, has been in the news a lot lately. Um, but here, the word Amen, it just comes into the Greek from the Hebrew, and it just means like we would use it. It means thus, or truly, or let it be so. And Jesus uses this word often when he is speaking to indicate that what he is about to say is both true and truthful. Think of all the ways you see in the scriptures where Jesus speaks and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, or if you're using the King James, verily, verily, I say to you. That's the word, amen. He is saying, amen, amen, I say to you. So whereas we normally, when we pray or say something, and then you hear people say amen at the end of it, saying that, yes, that is true. Jesus announces usually before he speaks 
He says, truly, truly. In other words, I'm not even going to wait for affirmation. I'm going to tell you right now that what I'm saying is true and truthful. Therefore, here it comes. And, and then he says, truly, truly. And then he speaks to them. But here, Jesus isn't saying amen like he would say truly, truly. He is saying that he is the amen. He is the one who is true and truly and the one who is so. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul tells us that in Christ, as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes and amen. So Jesus Christ is the amen to all of God's promises in Scripture. He is the stamp of approval. He is the one who comes in and says, truly, truly, these promises of God will hold firm because I am the one in whom they are made. I am the one who fulfills these promises. He is the let it be so of all of God's promises. Now, secondly, and tied into this is Jesus introduces himself as the faithful and true witness. And we've seen allusions to this earlier as well. In Revelation 1 verse 5, Jesus describes himself as the faithful witness. And in Revelation 3 7, which we looked at two weeks ago, Jesus is the true one. So as the, as the witness, Jesus brings a word to all the churches. He bears witness to the churches. And as one who is faithful and true, what Jesus says to the churches is also faithful and true. You can take it to the bank. Then thirdly, Jesus introduces himself as the beginning of the creation of God. Now maybe you hear these words and maybe you think, okay, that sounds a little confusing. How can Jesus be the beginning of the creation of God? Isn't he God? Isn't he eternal? Isn't he the one who creates all things? And that is true. It sounds like Jesus himself is saying here that he is the first or the beginning of God's creation. Well, we could say three things to this. First, the word there, beginning, is the word arche, and it can mean beginning, but it can also mean origin or source. It has all of those, carries all of those meanings in that word. So the beginning or the origin, so something that comes out from it, or the source of creation. Secondly, in Colossians 1.15, Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. And when he says the firstborn of all creation, he's not saying firstborn in the sense of like, if you have three children, the first one that comes out is the firstborn. Because if you notice in the Bible, particularly the Old, Test- the Old Testament, there was this, the right of the firstborn. So the first child that would be born, if you had multiple children, would get the lion's share of the inheritance when the, when the parents die. Now notice how many times in the Old Testament does the firstborn actually get the lion's share of, you know, whatever. I mean, Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn. But who does the promise go to? It goes to Isaac, who is not the first. Now he's the firstborn of Abraham and Sarah, but he's not Abraham's first child. Okay, and then uh, Isaac has two children. And who are they? Esau and Jacob. Okay, who who was the firstborn? Okay, who got the birthright? (laughs) 
Jacob. Now, Jacob had to resort to a little trickery to get the birthright, but still, he was not the firstborn. Then Jacob had 12 sons. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to name all 12 sons, but who knows who the firstborn of Jacob was? Reuben. Did Reuben get the firstborn birthright? No, Judah did, right. Okay, so already we see firstborn doesn't mean born first. It means preeminence. So when Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, he's not saying that you're the first thing I created. He's saying that you have preeminence over all creation. And third, we can say here, too, that the Bible does not contradict itself. It is God's word. So we must interpret scripture with scripture. And there are other passages, such as John chapter 1, verse 3, in which, Jesus, in which John says that it was through Jesus that all things were created in this world. Uh, Colossians 1.16 also says that Jesus is the creative agent of the, the world. He is the divine instrument that God uses to create, just as Jesus is the eternal word. He is the word of God. And how does God create? God creates by speaking. Jesus is the word of God. So Jesus is the instrument through which creation comes. So all that to say, when he says he is the beginning of all creation or beginning of the creation of God, he is the the preeminent one. He is the one who is in charge of the creation of God. So all of this does is it presents to the church in Laodicea a picture of the one who is addressing them. And he is the ruler of all creation. And he is the one who speaks words that are faithful and true. So now we move on to the diagnosis in verse 15. Again, as he does with all the churches, he diagnoses them. Now, here for Laodicea, Jesus has only rebuke. Okay, remember there are two churches that received only good words, and there are two churches that received only bad words. Sardis was one of them. That was the dead church, and Laodicea is the other one. They are the lukewarm church. The two churches that received no rebuke were Smyrna, the persecuted church, and the one we looked at last time, Philadelphia, the faithful church. So Jesus here, after introducing himself, now proceeds to the diagnosis in verse 15, where he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So he says, I know your works. I know your deeds. I see what you do. Interestingly enough, he doesn't actually mention any of their deeds. <laughs> okay. when, in other letters, when he says, I know your works, and he says, you know, this is what you've been doing. You're faithful. You're keeping my word. Other things. He doesn't say anything about their works, but he knows their works. So what happens here is that Laodicea is so lukewarm that they have no works worthy of Jesus even bothering to mention what they are. Now, he says this rather ominous phrase here, you are neither cold nor hot. So, yeah, so it does refer to the water supply. The water out of Hierapolis uh, had medicinal hot springs, which soothed the bather. Uh, Colossae had refreshing cold mountain water to satisfy thirst. And Laodicea had to have their water piped in. And when it got to the city, the water was undrinkably lukewarm. Now, as it pertains to the works of the church, some see hot and cold as two opposite but definitive uh, attitudes. Okay, so in other words, you ever ask somebody what they thought about something? You go to the movies and you say, what did you think of that movie? Or you go to dinner 
And what did you think of that? What did you think of your dinner? And they like, yeah, I don't know, it was all right. That's kind of like a lukewarm response, right? And you're like, well, what do you, what do you mean? Yeah, it's all right. It's like, did you like it? You're like, yeah, it's okay. It's like, did you hate it? Yeah, I didn't hate it. I didn't like it. It's, yeah, so some commentators are like that. They think that cold means that you hate Jesus and that warm or hot means that you love Jesus. And Jesus is saying, look, don't give me this, eh, it's all right. What do you think of Jesus? Eh, he's okay. No, either love me or hate me. But that's not what Jesus is saying. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think Mark is right. And the previous pastor who gave, who gave him that note is also right. <laughs> Yeah, hot and cold represent both good things here. Again, going back to that water supply. Cold water is good when you're thirsty. Hot water is wonderful when you want to take a bath. Okay, You know, both are good things. So Jesus here pleads with the Laodiceans, I wish that you were good, (laughs) either hot or cold. Be one or the other, but don't give me this lukewarm garbage. In fact, more evidence to me that indicates both hot and cold means something good or positive. Why would Jesus wish upon the church to be cold if cold meant to hate him? (laughs) It's like, I wish you and the church would not believe in me and, and reject my name. At least that way you'd be honest about it. I mean, that doesn't make sense. He calls the church, even the unbelievers in the church, he calls them to repent. He doesn't say, okay, Okay, just don't believe in me. No. So why would Jesus wish to have a cold attitude toward him if it represented something bad? But there's nothing worse, and this is where we're getting at, where he says you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. There's nothing worse than a half-hearted commitment to anything. And that's what Jesus is getting at here with this church. There's nothing worse than a half-hearted, lazy apathetic commitment to Christ. I mean, if your spouse asks you, do you love me? What good is it if you kind of grunt and uncommittal, I suppose? You know, (laughs) do you love me? Sure. (laughs) What would you think about that? (laughs) You might be like, are you sure? (laughs) Do you want to take a few moments and think that over a bit? Um... Or in the work environment, do you want an employee who gives a half-hearted effort on the job? Well, even more so is your commitment to Jesus. Jesus doesn't want lazy, half-hearted disciples. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We've looked at this before in other settings, but Luke chapter 9. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 57, this is Jesus speaking. Well, he will be speaking at least. As the disciples were going along the road, someone said to him, that is Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds have, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but, that's a bad version of the word, but, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. 
But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And that particularly, that last verse describes the one who has a half-hearted, not focused commitment to Christ. He's like, yeah, I'll follow you, but let me, can I take care of my business first? And Jesus says to him, look, you can't, you know, you can't put your hand in the plow while you're looking back at something else over there. You're not going to plow straight lines if you do that, for one. And two, you're, you're, you're showing a half-hearted attempt here at discipleship. Jesus does not want lazy, half-hearted disciples. Turn back to Revelation 3. And in Romans, Paul exhorts the church in Rome in chapter 12. This is his now where he is getting to the point where he starts to exhort them to holy living after giving them all of the riches of the gospel. He says in chapter 12, verse 11 of Romans, he says, Be not lagging behind in diligence. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Don't be lagging behind in your diligence to the Lord. Don't be half-hearted in your commitment to God. Don't be apathetic in your feelings towards Jesus. But be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So now he goes on to, in verse 16, what I'm calling the warning. In verse 16. So what do you do when you've taken a swig of lukewarm water? Well, you spit it out. That's what Jesus says here. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Some versions may, does the King James say vomit or spew? Spew? Okay, so spew, vomit, spit. Because Jesus, or because the church in Laodicea is lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, Jesus here has a violent and visceral reaction to them. So his reaction to the church that is half-hearted and lazy is not half-hearted and lazy. He's got a very fervent, diligent response to them. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because you are nauseating to me, is what he's saying here. In fact, it's, I'm going to use another example, lukewarm coffee. Okay, my wife and I are heavy coffee drinkers. We will make a pot of coffee and as often we do when we drink coffee, sometimes we forget that we have the cup there and it sits there and it doesn't, you know, it cools down to room temperature and you go take a drink, you know, you, know, you spit it right back in the cup because it's awful. Now, normally I would go pour it out and get a fresh cup. Linda goes to the microwave, zaps it so it's, it's hot. But either way, the thing is you don't want to drink lukewarm coffee, right? You'd rather have coffee be cold or hot. See, iced coffee is good. Hot coffee is good. Lukewarm, room temperature coffee, not good. Okay. And that word there, spit, this is the only time we see this word in the entire New Testament. And it literally does mean to vomit. So Jesus takes this church in and it's so repulsive to him that it causes him to lose his holy lunch. Okay. Is what's going on here. Now I ask you. How bad do you have to be as a church to have Jesus want to spit you out? Okay, I mean, it sounds funny, but think about it. How bad is the church? I mean, he didn't say that to Sardis, the dead church. He didn't say that to Ephesus, the loveless church. 
He didn't say that to Thyatira, the church that was corrupt. I mean, now that's a church, you know, you might, you know, what was going on in Thyatira with, with that woman Jezebel, you might think, well, that would be worthy of vomiting, you know, all of the, the gross immorality going on in the church. Why doesn't Jesus spit them out? You know, this lukewarm, yeah, yeah, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> sure, I guess, I love him. <clears throat> you know, you grunt, I don't know. But how bad do you have to be to cause Jesus to want to vomit you out? How bad does the church have to be to cause such a violent reaction from the Lord? Now, the letter doesn't say specifically, but what has been said earlier may help to provide some clues. The church was neither cold nor hot. They had lost their fervency in worship. They had no diligence in their service to the Lord. They had no true love in their hearts for God. As I've been saying before throughout here, Jesus doesn't want lazy, half-hearted disciples sleepwalking through the Christian life. When you think about it, coming to church ought to be a joy. Fellowshipping with fellow believers ought to be a delight. Getting into the word of God ought to be something that we look forward to. But here the church in Laodicea was spiritually apathetic. They, that word literally means no emotion, no pathos, no feeling at all. So that brings us now in verse 17 to the rebuke. And another reason why Jesus wanted to spit them out of his mouth in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So Jesus rebukes the church by telling them, you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. So this church was proud. The church in Laodicea, just like the city of Laodicea, was proud. They thought they needed nothing. They were a wealthy church. They were materially wealthy church, that is. They thought they needed nothing, that they were self-sufficient. Contrary to the letter we saw two weeks ago, the church in Philadelphia had what? Little power. They realized, they recognized their inability to do anything for God outside of the fact that God himself do it, that the Spirit move and work in them. They realized they had little power. But it was that church that God says, or Jesus says, I've got an open door for you. But here, Laodicea thought that they were doing okay. Thank you very much. We don't need your help, Jesus. As I like to say, pride is God repellent. So if you want to know anything that causes God to want to go, you know, and just kind of do that, it's pride. It is pride. Pride is God repellent. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, he, he counters that by saying, woe to you who are rich. It's not a knock against being you know, it's not like you get into the heaven by being poor and you're kept out by being rich. But if you are rich, you don't recognize your need, right? You, rec- you feel like you're self-sufficient. You don't recognize your need because you have so much. And the irony here is that the Laodiceans who thought they were rich and wealthy in need of nothing 
were in reality wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, try and imagine what it will feel like as a church to think you're going strong. You know, like you're too, you know, you're too sexy for your shirt, too sexy for your pants. And then you realize here, God says, no, you are pathetic. You are pathetic. In fact, we looked at this earlier this morning, I think in a sermon, you know, James says, God opposes the proud, right? But gives grace to the humble. Pride is God repellent. Now, the church of Jesus Christ cannot draw its conclusions about itself from its material and cultural surroundings. And that's what the Laodiceans had wrongly thought. They looked at their outward appearance. They looked at their wealth. They looked at their, their, what they could see with their eyes. And then they assessed themselves that they were rich and wealthy and didn't need anything. But then because they had trusted in their own riches, they didn't recognize how truly poor and pathetic they really were. And here Christians also should therefore be on guard against adopting the spirit of the age and of the place where we live instead of cultivating a biblical ethos or ethos and the agenda of Jesus Christ. So now we move on to verse 18, the exhortation. So what do you do or what do you get a church that thinks it has everything, but in reality has nothing? (laughs) You know, well, how do you shop for the person who has everything? Well, what do you do with a church that thinks it has everything, but in reality has nothing? Well, you tell them to come to Jesus for their true needs, where he says in verse 18, I advise you then to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So Jesus advises the Laodiceans to buy from him. And instead of trusting in their own riches, they are instructed now to receive from Jesus true riches. True riches. Now again, notice their need. They were poor, naked, and blind. Here are the three things that Laodicea was very good at. They were wealthy, they had a rich textile industry, and they were, you know, medically, you know, they had a very fervent and and vibrant medical industry going on. And here Jesus says, no, you are poor, you are naked, and you're blind. And then what Jesus offers then is for their spiritual poverty, he offers them pure refined gold. For their nakedness, he offers them white garments. And for their blindness, he offers them eye salve so they could see. So here Jesus offers to this lukewarm church the very things they were so desperately in need of. Now, what do these things represent? Well, the gold refined by fire speaks of the incorruptible, imperishable, and unfading inheritance that we have in the Lord. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter, that we have an inheritance that is kept secure in in heaven by God, an inheritance that is incorruptible, imperishable, and unfading, unlike the treasures of this world. Again, that's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? 
Put your, you know, put your riches in heaven where moth and rust and thieves cannot break in and steal. Don't you know, trust in riches of this earth where they can are corruptible. So here, the gold refined by fire is that incorruptible, imperishable, unfading inheritance that we have in the Lord. Now, the white garments, we've seen these before. They represent the imputed righteousness of Christ, which clothes our spiritual nakedness and covers our spiritual shame. And then the eye salve cures our spiritual blindness and allows us to truly see. Now, a question can be rightly asked. If the church in Laodicea is a true church like we looked at with true believers, why does it need these things? Why does it need the white garments of Christ's imputed righteousness? Why does it need eye salve to cure their spiritual blindness? This is a hard question to, to answer without knowing more about the church and what's going on there. And also, their commentators are kind of split on this. Some think that the church in Laodicea was a true church. Some think that the, Laodicea, the church in Laodicea was not a true church, that it was an apostate church, which is why it needs these things. My take is that like any church, there is a mixture of true and false believers in the church. And each church is more or less pure in its uh, trueness as a church. So perhaps here in Laodicea, they were so lukewarm that it became their identity. They became identified with this kind of apathetic, half-hearted, lazy approach to Christ. Perhaps many in the church simply had a profession of faith, but were so compromised by the world around them that their complacency and their apathy then became sort of infectious within the church. But I think like any church, there is a mixture of wheat and tares in the church, more or less pure. But still, it is never a bad thing to be continually exhorted, particularly in this case by Christ, to look to Christ for all of the needs that we have in this world. And not to look at ourselves. So now we go now to verses 19 and 20. As we see here the call to repent. The call to repent. And here I think this is what to me indicates that Laodicea was at least a true church. In the sense that it wasn't like Sardis, the dead church. And that um, when we see here, Jesus says in verse 19. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline Therefore, be zealous and repent. These proud, lukewarm believers were still his people, those whom he loves. And how do we know that? The Lord reproves and disciplines them. We see this in Proverbs 3, and it's also cited in Hebrews 12, that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. You don't discipline someone you don't love. You don't try to correct someone you don't love, right? You don't try to discipline someone else's children. Well, maybe sometimes you do, but generally speaking, you don't try to discipline someone else's children. You discipline your own children, not a stranger's kids. And Jesus knows that as things stand, the church in Laodicea is not headed in the right direction. So Jesus then calls his church to repent before it's too late. And he tells them to be zealous, which is the opposite of what they were doing. They were lukewarm. So be zealous, be fervent, stop being lukewarm, and then repent, return to a vibrant relationship 
with Christ. And now we come to um, what I think is one of the most misinterpreted and misquoted verses in Scripture, Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, how many have seen, like, I think it's a famous picture of Jesus standing in the garden outside of a door, and the door has no knob on the outside because it has to be open from the inside. And Jesus is there with his little lamp and is kind of knocking on the door, you know, and, and it's, it's based on this verse, okay? Also, how many times have you heard this verse used at altar calls or evangelistic uh, rallies? You know, Jesus is sitting there knock, knock, knocking on the door of your heart. Won't you please let Jesus in so he can come into your heart and you can become a believer and stuff like that? But when you look at the context here, is that what you see? Do you see Jesus, poor, meek, and mild, just pleading at the door of a believer's heart, knocking on it? No, he's at the door of his church. <laughs> he's like, let me into my church. <laughs> you guys have let, locked me out of my church. I need to be in this church. It is my church. Jesus is standing at the door of his church, the door of his bride, and he's knocking. There's similar imagery in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, that, you know, Song of Solomon, of course, it's a love song uh, between King Solomon and his believed to be first bride, the daughter of Pharaoh, which is also a picture of Christ in his church as well. And in chapter 5, verse 2 of the Song of Solomon, uh, we read that I was asleep, this is the bride, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved, was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. The beloved is knocking on the door of the bride's chamber. And that's what we see Jesus doing here at the church. He is knocking on the door of the church. He is demanding to be let back in and that the church renew her love for him. Stop being lukewarm. Be hot or cold. Be medicinal or refreshing. There's also some ominous imagery actually associated with Jesus standing at doors and knocking. In Matthew 24, verse 33, this is Jesus' um, Olivet Discourse, which will actually play a large role as we go forward in Revelation. But at the end of that, uh, discourse in chapter 24, verse 33, before Jesus starts talking about some parables, he says about the signs of the times, so you too, when you see all these things, the signs of the times, recognize that he, Christ, is near. He is right at the door. And in James chapter 5 and verse 9, same thing. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's never a good sign when the judge is standing at the door, okay? When the judge is standing at the door. It's not Judge Judy, I assure you that, okay? The first passage, Jesus tells his disciples to heed the lesson of the fig tree. The sign of the fig tree says, when you see the fig tree starting to bear you know, leaves, you know that summer is near. 
which in other words, you can, the signs of the times are supposed to get you in your mind thinking. When you see these things I'm saying, know that I am coming soon. The wars, the rumors of wars, and all these other things that we'll see later. And of course, we see that same uh, imagery in James. But then Jesus promises blessed fellowship in here for this church for anyone who does open the door to let Jesus back in to the church. And then Jesus closes this letter with the promise in verses 21 and 22. In 21, we see, He who overcomes, the one who is victorious, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And we've seen this promise before in a nutshell. This is the promise for the overcomer that he will rule and reign with Jesus Christ when he returns in his kingdom. This is a promise we see throughout Scripture, and Jesus has mentioned this before in Revelation, and he's mentioned it to the overcomer in Thyatira, Revelation 2.26, that that he will reign and rule with Christ. Uh, Jesus gave this promise to his disciples in Matthew 19.28, where he says, you will sit with me on 12 thrones, and you will rule the 12 tribes of Israel. And we see this fulfilled in in the future, In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, in that final vision where John sees, I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So those thrones are the ones, are thrones that are given to those who reign with Christ. And this is one of the great promises given to believers, to reign and rule with Christ in his eternal kingdom. And then Jesus closes this letter like he does all the others with the warning to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, plural, not just to this church, but to all the churches. Hear what the Spirit is saying to all the churches. So the warnings given to the church in Laodicea must be heeded by us as well. So we need to take an account, an inventory, if you will. Are we a lukewarm church? Are we half-hearted and apathetic church? Have we lost our zeal and diligence for the Lord? Do we suffer from a sense of pride and self-sufficiency? This letter and all the other six letters provide lessons and warnings that every church in every age needs to hear and obey and heed.